Welcome to the Adversity Psychologist Podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences, and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years' experience of mental health, disability, and human behavior. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Welcome to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo and today I would like to introduce to you my colleague, Shirley Blanche. I would like her to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about what's brought her on today. Wow. Well, yeah, my name's Shirley Blanche. I'm a mindfulness coach, meditation teacher, and as you said, your project partner in the wonderful conversation starter project. So we've got to get a plug for that in there, haven't we, as well? Absolutely. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to having a chat with you today about using a bit of mindfulness in everyday life so that we can help make our lives better, I guess. That's exactly it. And if it's all right to say it's a Monday today, so it's the beginning of the week. And for me, I think it's a good time of the day to do a little mindful check-in Monday morning. I like to check in and get a bit grounded before my thoughts overwhelm me (laughs) with what's on for the week. So actually, it's a good day for us to talk about mindfulness. But you have a backstory as well, don't you? You've been through a lot. And I'm really interested in your journey of kind of what brought you to mindfulness and what kind of helps you shape your relationship with mindfulness um, and whether you're comfortable letting us a little bit into that past into that history and what brought you to mindfulness definitely I think it's part of my passion is being able to share my story and help find resonance with other people who might want to I don't know who might have been through the same kind of thing and, uh, and and I do feel like I know you said that I've been through a lot, but I mean, I do feel slightly fraudulent <laughs> being on the adversity uh, podcast because I do feel like in general, I've had a really blessed life and I haven't had to overcome a lot of adversity in the same way other people have. But I guess the worst thing that ever happened to you is the worst thing that ever happened to you. So it's all relative. That is absolutely it. So one of the reasons that I wanted to make this podcast is I want people's everyday lived experience of adverse events. And as you say, it's a really important point, actually, Shirley. I don't think anyone's brought this up before, that what we don't want to do is invalidate people's experiences. So, you know, Mm. there's no kind of comparing. I was talking Mm. to somebody yesterday at an event about, you know, we don't want to compare our Mm. traumas or our past. This is about learning from individual experience Mm. and things that you've been through. And your story really resonated and does resonate with me in terms of how it's brought you to kind of helping people, brought you to kind of help yourself and to help yourself navigate. And I think people could learn an awful lot from hearing that story. So tell us a little bit about your relationship with your dad and what happened following his diagnosis with cancer. And take your time. Uh, so my dad was, uh, I always said that my dad was the heart of our family. He wasn't the head of our family because he had a really big heart. He was really generous, not just to us, but to everybody in the community. He was really influential in our community. He was a, a successful businessman. But, you know, he was one of those people that would give without doing it publicly. 
So he and and if I speak to his older brother, he's still with us. He will always say that even as a child, my dad was the kind of kid that would give you his last sweet. He'd give you his last penny if he thought you needed it more. He was just that person. And certainly growing up, we saw lots of evidence of him being extremely generous to people around us. Um, I've said this story before, but, uh, you know, not to your listeners. So I'm going to share it again, which is that... uh, he would every Christmas we would go to the local church and uh, not to go to the service he wouldn't necessarily go to services but he would rock up there go to the vicarage and hand over a load of cash to our vicar and say whoever in the community needs the money uh, just give it to them and so that's very that was very typical of him he set up a boxing club in Horsham where we live and uh and that was to inspire young people through sport. He was a massive advocate for sport to go and fulfill their potential. You know, he would employ people from the boxing club. So he was very involved in helping people and giving of himself. So that was a, just to give you an idea of the nature of the person that he was. He was very loud. Uh, he, you would know when he entered a room, he kind of lit up a room. He had a, a certain energy. He could communicate to anybody, no matter who they were. And uh, and he was very inspiring in that way. And he really lived his life. You know, he was born with scoliosis, which is a, a you know, curvature of the spine. And so he had a lot of health problems resulting from that. But he did a very physical job. He built the business up. He worked 24-7. He would go off and live his life to its absolute fullest it never stopped him from doing anything none of his health challenges ever stopped him so he was incredibly positive and he was incredibly resilient so he was great as a role model from that Uh, why I differentiate between uh, my relationship with my dad as opposed to who my dad is is because actually growing up we didn't really see much of my dad because he was living his life and because he was building his business But weirdly, when he was diagnosed with cancer and he was diagnosed in 2006 with esophageal cancer, um, that's when things changed because actually he had to take a step back then. And I would say, looking back on it now, although it was a very traumatic time in many ways, I don't believe I would have had the relationship that I had with my father had he not gone through that period of time where he had to take a step back because he would have stayed working until the day he dropped, you know, that that, that was his purpose in, in life. So that's quite interesting. And that's that's what struck me. So, you know, as we've been working together, it's just, you know, the way you talk about your dad, not just in terms of what he does, but that relationship you had with him, especially towards the end um, and kind of how that shaped you as a person. That story about Christmas really struck with me, you know, in terms of him doing that, but in a really humble way, if that's all right to say, you know, mm. he didn't necessarily want anybody knowing what he was doing. And for me, that's, you know, the ultimate kind of, you know, philanthropic act, isn't it? Um, and one of the things that we've talked about is when he got poorly and he was dealing with his journey is just how that impacted you and, and your worries about health. Is that mm. something you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Because I think that, you know, cancer affects so many people. Yeah. And um, at, at that time he was, and because I think because he was such a, you know, he really embraced life and he lived every second. And so he was never going to not, go down without a fight you know he was very positive about it and very um 
determined to get through all the treatment and he had very hardcore treatment. Um, I, I've sort of changed my view around using language like fighting cancer and stuff now because of all the things that I've learned, but that's how it very much was at that time. So I'm just using that terminology around that. Uh, I was a stay-at-home mum at the time, so my youngest son was born in 2005, so he was very little at that point, and my other son uh, was about four. So I was a stay-at-home mum at the time, and I think that that's very relevant because I had a lot more time to think. Not that staying staying at home with children is easy, because it really isn't, but it is the kind of you're doing a lot of mundane activities and you're doing a lot of stuff that just gives you a lot of time to think. And so I think that led me to a lot of overthinking and just getting very caught up in my thoughts around that. At the same time as well, I also, my mother-in-law was diagnosed with cancer. And also I had one of my closest friends who had cancer as well. So it wasn't just my dad, you know, so I seemed at that time to be surrounded by a lot of disease and specifically cancer, even though they all had different types of cancer. And during the period of time that my dad uh, had the esophageal cancer, and then he did have a period of remission, and then he passed away. During that time, I did lose my mother-in-law and one of my closest friends as well. So within a space of about two years, I'd lost three very significant people to cancer. And so my thinking around that got quite distorted there was also you know because I talk about the grief but I think actually a lot of my trauma came from going through watching somebody that I love going through that process of treatment yes you know so it wasn't just about the loss it was about everything that happened along that journey and also there were things that had happened there were misdiagnoses you know, he went through two unnecessary gallbladder operations because when his cancer came back, they thought he just had gallstones and it was misdiagnosed and his cancer was missed. And there were there were times where we told that he was OK and then it came back. Oh, no, sorry, you've only got a few weeks. You know, so we, we had lots of there were lots of emotional, you know, it was like an emotional roller coaster. And anyone that's been through that or had a loved one go through that will know that actually it's about waiting for the next test results. It's the stress. It's then the relief or then dealing with those emotions. So it's a constant roller coaster. Um, And also the fact that, you know, my family own this business and my parents live on site of the business. And so, so do I with my family. So I would see my dad every day. He'd, you know, pop in. And so it was somebody who I was very used to being around and seeing around every day as well. So I think I just wanted to make that point really that it's not just about the grief. It's about processing the trauma that you're experiencing through that. And I think because my husband was going through it with his mother as well, um, Normally, when you would go through something like this, you would have your partner maybe who had a slightly different perspective to you because they've got a bit more distance from it. But because he was then dealing with his own emotions around the loss of his mother, it seemed like both of us were going through this. And he was very close to my dad as well. So it became a very consuming thing in our lives. I've talked with another guest, actually, about grief he's a psychologist and colleague of mine and trauma came up there you know that when you're dealing with grief 
actually often the word trauma doesn't come up, you know, in terms of what you're dealing with, how you process news, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what the person that you might be supporting is going through. Um, and actually for you, multiple losses, multiple forms of grief and the trauma associated with that. And what you've noticed, so if it's all right to ask, what did you begin to notice in terms of your cognitions and emotions then around cancer and the likelihood having mm. lost three significant people? Yeah, so, and, and I think the scary thing is you don't notice <laughs> straight away, you know. So what yeah. was happening was waking up in the night thinking, who's going to get it next? Am I going to get it? Do I really want to go through treatment? When I get it, my language became when I get it, not if. Will I go through treatment? Oh, it's, you know, one in three people get it or whatever, working out the odds. Who's it going to be in my family next? Uh, You know, could something happen to my children? Would it be my husband? Would it be one of my sisters? You know, uh, all these things going through and literally almost mapping out my plan of what I was going to do when I got cancer and was I going to go through alternative treatments was I going to go through it you know because I'd seen my dad go through the treatment so as, as, as well I think I had a huge fear around the treatment as well as the, the disease you know so it was that um, going to the doctors as soon as I felt a pain anywhere or worrying about things, obsessively reading articles on the latest thing that was supposed to give you cancer, which is pretty much everything, uh, you know, or the latest thing that's supposed to cure you. Yeah, so then becoming very obsessive around information relating to that. Uh, and then I hadn't really noticed it, and I think that is the scary thing, is that I hadn't noticed that that, because it... Because when you're going through something and when you're processing that and you've got other people around you who are also processing it. So all my immediate family are processing this. My husband's still processing the death of his mother, you know. And what I what I what my belief was, well, everyone just gets cancer and dies. You know, that that became basically what my core belief was. I, I failed to notice that I knew other people that had had cancer and survived. So I wasn't looking there. I was looking very much for the threat. <clears throat> so it's very interesting. And it actually took a passing conversation with a hus- with one of my husband's friends in a pub. And he was really into mindfulness and he'd done loads of stuff. And he's quite observant. And I think my husband and I were just talking about, you know, what we've been through in the cancer and how everybody gets it. And, and he just looked at me and he said, has it ever occurred to you that you might not get cancer? Wow. Well. And it's then that it struck me. Yeah. It hadn't. And when I realized that it hadn't, I realized that my thinking around that had got distorted without me noticing. So it was a chance remark from someone in a pub over a beer (laughs) that made me recognize that my thinking wasn't normal or whatever you want to say. Normal is a a, (laughs) a very objective word. But um, a subjective word, but it's, uh, yeah, it had made me think I'm not seeing the world in the same way that other people are seeing it. And that was a wake up call for me. So much I want to pick up on there. <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? Just being able to, A, just normalising those feelings 
you know, that actually so much of what your brain did there, that threat mode, you know, trying to keep you safe, it's all really normal. It doesn't make it nice for the person experiencing it. But being able to catch, I guess, you know, in psychology, some people might say that might be a bit of a cognitive bias then, which is an understandable one because your brain's trying to, you know, get rid of this potential threat. But being able to be supported to maybe step outside of that and begin to look at what could life look like without that dominating the kind mm. of what's next and the kind of health anxiety or worries about health, whether it's a formal clinical diagnosis of health anxiety, right down to worries about health, it can have quite a significant impact on someone's day-to-day function. As you say, not just for yourself, but you know, when you've got young children and other people in your life as well. And I also wanted to pick up because there was something you said as well that obviously when you're grieving, but your husband was grieving for his loss is just that support for you as well you know and I'm wondering whether your threat mode may have been exaggerated even more because of that because you were having to look after yourself um, Mm. because everyone was coping with so much so Mm. what was it that helped you to navigate that how did you once you started to, to rethink or to notice some of that cognitive bias what next steps did you take to be able to manage that to try to find a way forward yeah it's interesting isn't it because I love learning stuff and so for me the fear changed from a fear of getting cancer to the fear that my thoughts around cancer would create that within me because I started to think well if I'm thinking this obsessively then maybe I'm just going to make that happen because I'm sort of stressing myself out so much So I was still being fear-driven to try and find a solution. But that solution for me was to empower myself, to try and get some control back, to take some control back over my life. So I was still being driven by fear, but I just directed the fear in a different way. And so I joined a local group of healers that were running meditation classes because my father had been really helped by a healer when he was really seriously ill. So when there was nothing more, and and this is what I always say, you know, I always say to people, it's really clever to go out into the world and learn as much as you can about all sorts of different things that can help you and not put all your eggs in one basket. Because when you invest all your faith into the, the medical solutions for things and you don't look at the other things that are out there that can help support you emotionally, um, what you're doing is when that when those people turn around to you and say there's nothing more we can do, you find yourself in a really scary place. So I would never say to anybody, oh, don't go down the medical route, or whatever, go down the complimentary, but get the best of everything. And so when the medical community had turned around and effectively said, there's nothing more we can do. And my dad was in a lot of pain and he was on fentanyl, which is, you know, the, the pretty much the most you can get fentanyl is pretty hardcore. Um, yes, and, yeah, that, and that wasn't working for his pain. That still yeah. wasn't working for his pain. He was still in a lot of pain. Out of absolute desperation, uh, somebody had recommended a healer. And we were just a regular family that didn't necessarily go and do woo-woo stuff like healing. I mean, he'd had a bit of acupuncture and he was open to complementary therapies. So he was quite open-minded, but certainly not to that extent that you'd go to a, a healer. And this woman was able to work with him and completely get rid of his pain. You know, so he would go for a session with her and then he would come home and then he would sleep. And that was at that time was 
amazing. And I think from what I know now, people think healing means curing. And what I understand is healing doesn't mean curing. It just means whatever that person needs at that time. And for him at that time, it was to be out of pain. And I also was, I'm, a, I'm enough of a critical thinker to sort of look at this and think, well, it's not magical, mystical, but whatever she's doing is she's relaxing him enough so that his own pain-killing mechanisms in some, some way are kicking in. And so I just got really interested in that because I'm still looking at this point, how can I heal myself if I get cancer or somebody else does? What can yes. I do? How can yeah. I empower myself? And so therefore I went and I joined a group of healers and I learned how to meditate, which was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And I didn't think I'd be able to do it. So if anybody out there thinks they can't meditate, I'm telling you now, if I can do it, anyone can. I couldn't go two minutes without you know, in silence. I just, and I think if you've been through trauma as well and grief, it's very hard to sit with yourself. You don't want to sit with yourself. So, absolutely. Yeah. So, learning to do that and learning to meditate uh, was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And the first thing I noticed was actually that I stopped getting ill. Wow. It wasn't that I felt calmer, it was just that I didn't catch the colds that the kids brought home anymore. And I just suddenly thought one day, well, I haven't been ill for ages because I hadn't recognized at the time that your immune system, you know, if stress can impact on your immune system negatively, then maybe doing the opposite to that can help your immune system. So I was just getting healthier, you know. And so for me, that was enough of an incentive to carry on. Is it all right to ask them? Because there's something you said there that really caught my attention. And I think for a lot of listeners will really resonate. That what was it that made you say it was the hardest thing I did to be able to be introduced to meditation? Because I do think that is something that a lot of people experience. How do I begin to get into this world? Because there can be some preconceived ideas about what's needed and what it is. So the hardest thing for me was... So we would do guided meditations in this group. And what I would say to anybody, because I get asked a lot, oh, how do you just start? And people try and sit yes. still in quiet silence. So like, what you know, you wouldn't start trying to play tennis and go and play Roger Federer. Would you, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's baby steps. So by far the easiest thing to do is to to have guided meditations where your, your attention is just being directed somewhere and you're not having to sit. Uh, in silence you know so so I think that by far I would say to anybody do it that way but what would happen is we would be in guided meditations and then the lovely Joe, who who I owe so much to for teaching me meditation putting up with all my questions that I used to ask incessantly of her um, she would then just give us a few minutes of silence so we would be guided and then she'd say now I'm just going to leave you here and it was when she left me there I'm like well I can't do this you know, there was so much resistance and my brain so wanted to think of something. I'm just like, well, what, you know, how, how does this even work? But what was really interesting is after a while, um, I suddenly couldn't be in guided meditation anymore because it, it was too much noise. So the more used to it that I, I became, the more I wanted silence. And in the end, I wanted silence. And, and now I actually find guided meditations quite hard. I, I don't even listen to music yes. anymore in meditation. So I progressed from being in those groups, being fully guided, to then I would be at home. And obviously, you know, 
I was looking, still looking after my kids at the time. So I'm doing school runs and I'm doing all the, all the stuff that you would do as a full-time stay-at-home mom. And so I was looking for this odd 10 minutes here and there where I could just do something for myself. And so I would find 10 minutes of meditation music and I would just sit and I would just listen to the music and I would just try and still my mind in those times. And then after a while, that became too much. And I just remember sitting in, in this meditation group one time and just thinking, I'm just being led to silence here and that that's all I want. And I actually had to then leave the meditation group because I couldn't be guided anymore because it was too distracting for me from the silence that I wanted to connect with. Uh, but what it did do is it really awakened in me an interest in healing. And so I then undertook a year long uh, healer training course with them where we learned all about energy and healing and practicing healing on people and all that kind of stuff. So it sort of led me down a, a path it, 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 once you start learning things you just get more curious and I'm a curious person <laughs> which I really like that kind of I'm going to learn this rather than it being a prescriptive thing and I do think actually sometimes we've talked about this a lot haven't we that mm. sometimes there can be this idea that mindfulness is something you have to do in a certain way and within mindfulness there's meditation mm. and a lot of people get the the two terms muddled up really I think mm. um you know that mindfulness is sitting for hours and hours meditating and then brain comes along and goes I'm not going to be able to do that or there'll be loads of thoughts it will be unmanageable so I think it's actually really good for people to hear that somebody who's now an accomplished mindfulness practitioner also had this you know it's not something you just walk into and can do you need to find your relationship with it understand what it is what it isn't if that mm. makes sense and then how you can make it work for you, which is why I'm so interested. And when we first met, I was so interested in, in what you do. So your journey then into mindfulness, what, what did it look like after that? How, because I'm just interested as a busy mum, trying to find time yeah. and battling what perhaps mindfulness should be versus how you made time for it, how you made it fit into your life. Because it worked for you, it helped you with that anxiety, helped you with the worries about health, things you notice in your immune system, there's so many benefits to so again, you're right. And I would say it's definitely distinguishing between mindfulness and uh, meditation. Yes. So actually, you know, the meditation that I was learning, I, I wouldn't say it was mindfulness meditation. It, and, and this is the thing. There's so many different types of meditation out there. And yes. I've done yep. so many different types. So I got really interested in meditation. Um, and I learned a specific type of meditation called uh, transformation meditation, which right. combined mindfulness and transcendental meditation, which is more of a, a, a mantra type of thing. So you'd repeat a mantra over and over again. And maybe because I'm a talker, Tara, as we know, uh, I really liked mantra. Yes. It yeah. helped me get into a deeper state of trance. It helped me get into a deeper trance state. So I quite liked that. Whereas the mindfulness meditation is very much sort of staying in your body and being aware of things and noticing things coming up and all that kind of stuff I quite wanted to get into the deeper states and, and experience some of the spiritual stuff I'm not adverse to a bit of weird spiritual things I, I love I love a bit of that stuff so I anything that keeps me motivated and I got very interested in certain spiritual philosophies and all this sort of thing so I can't say I took <laughs> You can't say I took a very prescriptive direction. I took a meandering through what interested me direction and what which goes like. me, you know, yeah. which, which is why I think what I do is different to anybody else because I've gone through all these different things before and learned all these different things before, before I came across actually doing mindfulness as a structured thing. 
So then I decided that what I wanted to do was I wanted to learn. So the transformation meditation introduced it, introduced me to the concept of mindfulness. But what I wanted to do is I wanted, I'm still, you know, I was working part time. I was, my background was in interior design at that point. I was working part time doing a little bit of that stuff. But I got so interested in this that I was then looking at, well, how can we create the right environment in our home? So how can I can combine the interior design stuff that I'm doing with creating the right environment? But everything seemed to be coming back to healing and to learning more of this. And I realized that my passion was so much more in this that I just wanted to learn more and more. And because I was a stay-at-home mum, because I still see being a mum as probably the hardest and most rewarding job I've ever had, but still my vocation in life will probably always be that. I wanted to help my children and I thought I know this stuff now if I'd known that stuff then how much easier would my life have been up until now you know so yeah. not just dealing with my dad but dealing with uh, you know adolescence dealing with all the stuff that we go through and it's like if I could have done anything for myself as a child what would it be and why wouldn't I do that for my children so what I decided to do was try and find a course that taught mindfulness to children and I wanted to do that as a mum to help my kids. Yeah. So I found a course which was designed actually for teachers. But because I'd done so much other stuff before, the lady allowed me to come on this course and study this course and get qualified. Um, and it was combining a resilience practice with mindfulness. And I really liked that. So there was a certain amount of emotional resilience stuff combined with mindfulness. But it was really designed for teachers. And it was run uh, in, in line with the PSHE curriculum and, you know, all sorts of things like that. But I just thought, well, I don't mind. I, I'm gonna, just going to take what I can learn because I can do this for my kids. So I then thought I'd just be the, like the best mom ever. And my children would learn so much from me and they'd be such rounded to humans growing up and all this kind of stuff. And then I realized that I'd made mindfulness the least cool thing in the world to my children. And they were never going to do it. Like, you know, if it was something coming from me, they were never going to do it. And I tried, oh, let's just sit, let's just do it. And they were like, we just don't want any of this, mum. Stay away from it with your weird mindfulness stuff. You know, it was, it was very much like that. So at that point, I just thought, well, I can't help my children with this, but maybe I could help other children with it. And yeah. so I decided yeah. just, to, just to go to their school, uh, they go to their junior school, and I said, look, I've just done this course. Would you like me to write some mindfulness with any of the kids in your course? And by that time, I had started doing like, like teaching a little bit of meditation, doing some stuff. So I did. I had been practicing with people, but not with children. And they just said, "Yeah, come in and give it a go." And I remember because I'd been quite involved as a parent, so they sort of trusted me, I guess. And I remember the first time I ran a mindfulness session with children, they they gave me a class of thirty six children in year four and two hours and they said there you go and I was suddenly surrounded by these faces all kind of looking up at me having never run anything for children or never been a teacher or never having background like that um and just doing it and loving it and getting a really positive response and then the school asked if I'd come in and run it with all the other year groups and all the other classes mm. it's quite a big primary school so I ended up doing about yeah. two sessions and then I thought, well, actually, maybe this is something that I can do. I then went on and did another course um, with uh, 
how to do mindfulness and emotional resilience in the workplace. And I'd also done a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course as well, looking at how to combine uh, cognitive therapy and mindfulness together. So I kind of at that point had had quite a good idea about how mindfulness could work, uh, but out of meditation, you know. So what are some of that, that? That's what got me really interested in. What are the little things that we can do? Because when you're teaching it to kids, you know, you're not teaching them to sit there and meditate for hours but what I wanted to help them was understand that there's little things that we can do every day in our lives that can help us and make us feel better and so I started to work out well what are the things that I do what are the things that I use and what I realized is that I'd incorporated so much of mindfulness into my everyday life that it wasn't really in meditation that I felt I was benefiting from mindfulness it was out of meditation it was noticing those moments when my focus was going on things that were that were making me feel fearful. And the moment I realized that I had a choice, that where I placed my attention, where I placed my focus would create the emotional response. That was such a liberating moment of awareness for me. Yes. Yeah. Because I realized I had a choice then that I didn't have to wait for something to happen and, and then react to it that where I was placing my attention was on things that were creating a lot of fear in me because I was placing my attention on things that were very fearful. And so then I, when I, as soon as I noticed I was doing that again, then I had a choice to notice it, let it go, and just place my focus and attention somewhere else. So whether it was on my breath or whether it was on feeling my feet on the floor, or, you know, just something, something that wasn't that. That kind of, there's two things. A, you've always struck me as such a kind of innovator that there are so many books out there on mindfulness, books on meditation, as you say, even within each of those concepts, there are sub concepts, aren't there? And I wonder whether sometimes that's just overwhelming for people. But the thing about your lived experience and the reason that I wanted to get you on is that you've noticed all of those things. You've noticed how mindfulness works, how it doesn't work. You've adapted, you've kind of, you know, you've made it your craft now haven't you you've kind mm. of molded out what I'd call these kind of hacks accessible mindfulness things that people can really use and, and there's always a, a famous thing that quite often amongst psychologists will buy loads of books but you just haven't got time to read them all but actually I think a lot of people probably find that how many people listening now may have mindfulness books on their shelves at home that they haven't read much of or haven't opened at all and the thing about you is making it accessible something's got to work you can have a great concept but if it's not usable and for many people who are busy working whether you're a parent whatever it is it's understanding mindfulness but making it usable and that really has struck me um because you know you've taught me a lot little five minutes here there that you can do things just noticing you have introduced it in our community project haven't you and I think that's really helped people step outside of their normal comfort zone when they think of what meditation is just five ten minutes just seconds sometimes noticing something so I'm wondering as well with all of the work that you've done in schools and with adults and there are so many things you've been involved with every time I see you there's something you've mentioned that's new to me how has that helped you then because I'm really interested in that as a psychologist you know there's a lot of evidence based for compassion and compassion for others being good for our well-being teaching yeah. mindfulness making it accessible connecting with people has that helped you your personal journey you know with your grief with your recovery with your well-being generally definitely I mean I, it, it, it's just very interesting the way things happen so I, I was doing stuff in schools I then started teaching teachers mindfulness I then you know I, I've done so many different things and then working really with, with cancer charities you know and stuff like that and it's 
it's it's just such a it's such a gift isn't it you know to be able to to help people i mean if i can walk out somewhere and i can i can say something to somebody and one person thinks about things differently you know and quite often people will say it was that one thing you said to me that turned things around for me yeah that one thing And yeah. just, I think because I haven't taken the academic route that other people have taken and I haven't taken a prescriptive route, what I, I don't really, I see myself as more of a communicator. So I will read and research stuff and I just research stuff just because I was interested in it. And then I would just communicate it in a way that other people understood it. So I would hear people say to me, oh, I never really understood the mindfulness thing before. But now the way that you're yeah. saying it, because I was able to give examples of how I used it in my life. So it seemed more accessible to people to understand it in that way, because I, I just thought it's all sounding. Sometimes I think people who know a lot and who who are really, really intelligent don't always have the ability to communicate things in an understandable way to ordinary people. And I think that that maybe that's just what I do is just I can communicate things. And weirdly, I did a course once on helping people find their life purpose because I really believe that purpose is is massive for our, for our well-being. So all the stuff that I've learned, obviously, going along, I've put into practice in my own life. So, of course, that's going to help me because it's like I'm coaching myself <laughs> through. So so that really helps. Um, but what I realized in doing this course, it's like, well, what what? what are you naturally good at? What are you naturally gifted at? What are yeah. the things that you would have been chosen for? And I remember even at school and I started school a year early for some reason. I think my mother was trying to get rid of me or something. I don't know. Um, but, but so I was always the youngest and I was always the shortest, but I would always be chosen to be the one that would do the school readings or stand up in front of an audience or do things like that. So looking back on it, I think, well, this is maybe just what I was always meant to do. Yeah. And I really believe in a, in, in, and it's going to sound a bit woo-woo and spiritual, but I don't mind that. Uh, I think when you're in alignment with your path and what you're meant to do and your purpose, you can't help but feel the benefit of that. Yeah. It's something that you can't even describe. It's an energetic alignment. And when I'm helping people and you get that feedback from people and you suddenly see that one of the my favourite things was, and I used to do these drop-ins at, uh, secondary school and I would do one-to-one mindfulness little sessions with kids that were really struggling with maybe exams coming up or pressure and whatever and I would just say to them okay right here right now where all you've got to worry about is listening to my voice and hearing my voice and you're just sitting in this room and all you've got to do is hear my voice and then I'd say what worries do you have and they might say well I'm still really worried about my exams or I'm I say no 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 Let's do this again. All you've got to do is sit down and listen to my voice. In this moment, right here, right now, what worries do you actually have? And there'd be this look of relief that would come over their faces and they'd go, nothing. And it was such a realisation. And I realised that actually what we do, I think especially with young people, is we never tell them that they don't have to worry. We never give them permission to not worry. It's always like... We need to be worried about your exams. You need to be worried about your future. You need to be, you know, we don't tell them to worry, but we tell them to focus on these things. And a lot of these things are sometimes out of their control. And so definitely the way that it's helped me as well is it's changed me completely as a parent. And I wish that I'd known this stuff earlier because I think I could have used it a lot more to have been a lot more emotionally regulated as a parent. 
to model better behavior to my children. And what my son always said is, I never did any of your mindfulness stuff, but he said to his friend once, my mum gives great advice. You know, I don't do any of her mindfulness stuff, but she gives great yeah. advice. And so I think actually what that is, is that's me modeling it. You know, my yeah. kids are used to going and seeing me, you know, you know, don't interrupt me now because I'm meditating or look, I'm using this breath work now because that's going to calm me down or help me in some way. And so I think in there's immeasurable ways that this has changed my life in so many different aspects in my relationships with other people, my relationship to myself and the way that I've been able to help other people, which just gives me this feeling of joy, which is indescribable. And that is just something that, you know, it's one of the five ways to well-being, isn't it? Giving. I mean, that's you. Absolutely. We say every week, don't we, in the project, we run a community project together, helping people to feel better and connect in nature. And it makes us feel good, doesn't it, that we are yeah. helping other people. And it's completely them. selfish of us to go along every week yep. because <laughs> we're doing it for ourselves to make ourselves feel better. But, you know, there is an element of that, that you, when you give somebody a present and you've thought about, put a lot of thought and effort into it and you know you're waiting for them to open that present because they're going to love it so much that's the best feeling in the world yeah. and so for me yeah, this is like a gift that I can give to other people and and if if it helps them then that's the best feeling in the world it really is there's so much we could honestly need to have we you on time. <laughs> different times one of the things that you've kind of done which I'm really amazed and proud you've put your knowledge all of that vast expanse of knowledge into some books tell us about your books because for me this is really going to help people actually do rather than just think about doing yeah so what I wanted to do was I wanted to take all the stuff that I've learned from myself and put into practice myself and get the best stuff because I will just like read and research stuff and think, well, I like a bit of that. Mm, that doesn't really work. Oh, I like that. That's really good. And I'll practice it and I'll see what works the best. And I thought, wow, I wish I'd had a book that just had everything really easy to read, really quick. Uh, that would have helped and saved me so much time. And I think people don't necessarily read the books that I read, you know, and do the research that I do because they don't have the time and they don't have the motivation to do it. And I met a lot of people who've done mindfulness courses and uh, I will say to them, oh, are you still doing the mindfulness? And they say, no, because I don't like the meditation and I don't have time to do it. And I just think it's such a shame that because people feel that they don't want to meditate, that they can't benefit from mindfulness. Because as I said to you, I felt that the biggest benefits I got from mindfulness were actually outside of meditation. Yes. So, and, and I'm not knocking meditation because I meditate every day. I'm a big advocate for it. But there's loads of different types of meditation. So for me, mindfulness was most beneficial in my everyday life. So I thought, well, I'm going to put together a book and I'm going to give people all the best stuff in one book. And I'm going to make it accessible and I'm going to make it easy and I'm going to target it to different times of the day. So different practices you can do in the morning, stuff you can do at midday, stuff you can do at the evening. Because for me, I want to feel different in the morning to how I want to feel in the evening. I want to feel motivated in the morning to get out and start my day. In the evening, I don't necessarily want that high level of energy. I want to just kind of chill, relax and get ready for yeah. a great night's sleep. So there were different practices from journaling. You know, I've, ch I've, I've chucked so much stuff in there. I've wrapped it up under the name micro mindfulness because I think it's those micro moments of your day where you can catch yourself and change things a little bit. And the boring little mundane moments that make up our days are the moments that make up our lives. So if you really want to change your life, change the moments that make up your life. 
So really, the book is all about that, how to catch these little moments without having to find loads of extra time to do it, uh, things that you can do in real time. And I've called it micro mindfulness. But in all honesty, there's so many other well-being practices packaged up in it. But you can't list all of them. Uh, you know, so, so it's a nice, neat little title because mon- mindfulness does underpin it. So you've got the main book, which where I go into a little bit about my story and about uh, mindfulness and stress and how mindfulness can work to help you through those times and then breaking it down into the mornings and the middays and the evenings. And some practices that you can do. It's very practical. I always say it's not a book that you're going to read and go, now I know the answers to the universe. But it's more like a recipe book that you open up and go, oh, I'm feeling a bit like this. What's what can I try now? And so finding uh, yeah. things, little things in, in that moment. So that's that's the main book. And then I really I'm a real read, write learner. And I really like to write things down. And, you know, as a kid, I loved activity books and stuff like that. And I'm still like that now. So I really wanted to have a workbook element that went with it. And I was going to put it in the main book, but it all got very confusing. And I had a brilliant uh, publishing coach who was helping me with the writing and putting it together because I'm still a mindfulness coach who's just written some books, you know, not I don't I don't want to be an author full time. So I knew that I needed some help structuring it all. And uh, and she said to me, don't put the workbook in with the main book because people might be writing really personal stuff in there. You know, they might not want to be carrying that around with them, but they might, might want to carry the main book around with them. So yeah, we decided to separate yeah. it off. And so there is a workbook element to it as well where people can establish better practice habit habits. So it's more for like if you want to get into the habit of doing something and, uh, and, and if you like writing things down so you, people can start working on their own emotional scale charts, their own values lists, you know, positive focus trackers, all the little things that I think really help to keep you motivated as you go through your day. And then there's also a journal as well, an intention setting journal that I've put together because I think there's a lot of gratitude journals and things like that out there. And there's a lot of journals that do reflective journaling, but I find that journaling is most effective when you're making it intentional. So I've divided it into mornings and evenings. So in the morning, you set your intention, you remember what's important to you. So you add your values onto it. You can have a little affirmation in there. You do a bit of goal setting. So it's all the stuff you want at the beginning of the day. And then there's a section for reflecting back at the end of the day uh, and and seeing what worked, seeing what didn't, and then getting better. Because, you know, when you reflect back and you can see, oh, look, that worked for me, now I'm going to try that a bit more. So I actually think that the that the journal will be where possibly people have some real breakthroughs because it's 90 days of solidly doing something. But the other books provide the background to that. So they can all be used independently, depending on what you like. Uh, so there is some real crossover with it. But, you know, they are designed as a series. Which I think is, you know, as a psychologist, I have a background in disability, so I, I really value trying to make information accessible for people. And sometimes the way information is presented can be a barrier, as you say. So mm-hmm. people might not be great at holding things to mind, and that can be a barrier to using mindfulness. So what I really love about your series of books is you can find what works for you, but there's mm. a lot of visuals. When we write stuff down, we connect with it so much more, and also we can track progress quite easy. And mm. I really love that. So if people need to find these books where can they get them but also they're going to want to but how do they find more Shirley how do they get hold of you where's the best place to find you yeah well you can find I'm all over the place 
I'm a get mindful really. So uh, you can find me, everything's on my website. So getmindful.co.uk and all my social media links are on there. Um, I'm on Instagram at Shirley Get Mindful, I think. I'm on Facebook under under Get Mindful. And uh, and really, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on there, Shirley Blige. I'm all over the place. But really, go to my website, getmindful.co.uk. That's the best place to find me. And uh, yeah, reach out, connect. I love hearing from people. Absolutely. And also, I have have got to say as well, I do do a weekly radio show online at Crew Radio. So do come and check check that out. And I have different guests on there. You have been on there yourself, Tara. I have. So what's the link? Remind people, what is the link for Crew Radio if they want to find that? Do you know if you just Google? CrewRadio.com. So if you go on crewradio.com, you will find all the links to all the different things like that. And I'm just double-checking my Instagram profile now because I'm not very good at all the social media stuff. But, yeah, surely get mindful I'm on Instagram. I've just realised as well I'll have to get somebody from Crew Radio on because that's a story, another innovative thing that you're involved in, but that has its own backstory as well, Crew Radio, for, for listeners. So I will pencil that in to have a chat with someone see if we can get and you and some others on to talk lovely. about it. So I always ask every guest for my little signature move is one adversity takeaway. If there's one little golden nugget that you could give to people about coping with adversity, what might that be? Mm. I mean, for me, as I said earlier, the biggest breakthrough for me was realising that fear was a choice. And I know that sounds strange, but when I realised I kept choosing fear in the way that I, what I was placing my attention on kept making me feel afraid. And I understand that I was doing that because I was looking out for threats and I was trying to make sure that I could overcome those threats. But the second that I realised that fear was a choice and that I had a choice not to choose fear anymore, that for me, I think, was the biggest breakthrough. And that's what I would say is be very careful where you place your focus and attention because what you place your focus and attention on can often become the biggest thing in your life and so you want to be very careful about where that attention and that focus is going that is going to stay with me <laughs> Shirley Blanche thank you so so much um, I'm going to have to have you on again a to talk mindfulness but b I think maybe we should do a joint podcast on our community project as well because that I actually that came out of a pandemic didn't it an adversity and I've just realized I don't even have that on my list of things to put down as a podcast so we need to get the conversation starter project on for its own episode but Shirley thank you so much for coming on I really hope people just click on your website find your book and start that journey of finding how mindfulness can work for you and enhance your well-being which is what it's all about isn't it so thank you so much Shelley. it's been an absolute privilege to be asked to be on your amazing podcast so thank you so much for having me so glad to have you Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm Dr. Tara Quintrillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk. You'll see everything I'm up to, free resources, my media work and my new COVID recovery clinic as well. Remember to please rate and review my podcast. It really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us. The Adversity Psychologist podcast, helping you step at a time.